0: Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we're beginning a new chapter. We're moving on from the previous time period that kind of covered a long stretch of rising tensions, and we're going to be looking at a chapter that covers from February to October of 1917. I'm sure that things were fine, and they didn't escalate to the point that an entire chapter was needed to discuss this period. Let's get started and find out. Chapter 3. From February to October 1917. On the 23rd of February 1917, International Women's Day, thousands of women textile workers and housewives took to the streets of Petrograd, the Russian capital, to protest at the bread shortage. Footnote 1. The demonstration occurred a day after workers at the giant Putilov Works had been locked out it quickly drew in workers, especially in the Vyborg district of the capital, notorious for its militancy. The demonstration had a largely spontaneous character, although the Vyborg committee of the Bolshevik party had called a protest. None of the revolutionary parties expected that it would prove to be the start of a process that would rapidly lead to the abdication of the Tsar. The crowd, many of whose members had experience of strikes and demonstrations, threw up its own leaders in the form of local socialist activists. By the following day, more than 200,000 strikers took symbolic control of the capital by marching from the outlying districts across the bridges into the city centre, throwing rocks and lumps of ice at the police on their way. On the 25th of February, students and members of the middle classes joined the crowds bearing red flags, and singing the Marseillaise, Among the banners were many emblazoned with the words, down with the war, and down with the Tsarist government. Soldiers from the garrison were ordered to clear demonstrators from the city centre, but proved reluctant to do so. On Sunday, the 26th of February, soldiers were ordered to fire on the crowds, and by the end of that day, hundreds had been killed. The following day, however, the die was cast when the Velinsky regiment mutinied, inspiring other military units to follow its example. By the 1st of March, 170,000 soldiers had joined the insurgents, taking part in attacks on prisons and police stations, arresting Tsarist officials and destroying emblems of slavery, notably the crowned two-headed eagle. A revolution was in progress, but as one revolutionary put it, quote, "It found us, the party members, fast asleep, just like the foolish virgins in the gospel." End quote. Footnote two. This needs some qualification, since militants from the different socialist parties and groups at factory and district level did inject a political element into the demonstrations, even if party leaders were wrong-footed by the sheer speed of events. On the 27th of February, however, activists in the Workers' Group or the Central War Industries Committee, in coordination with Socialist deputies in the Duma, decided to reconvene the Soviet of 1905 as a temporary organ to give leadership to the movement. Immediately, factories and military units began to send delegates to the Taurid Palace, the seat of the Duma, to form the Petrograd Soviet of Workers' and Soldiers' Deputies. Also, on the 27th of February, liberal members of the Duma created a committee chaired by the Octoberist Mikhail Rodzianko, which proceeded to play an autonomous role in determining the course of events. It set about arresting ministers, generals, and police chiefs, and used personal contacts to persuade regimental commanders to side with the revolution. Crucially, Rodzianko used his influence to get Stavka to persuade the Tsar to abdicate it was out of this committee that the Provisional Government would be formed on the 2nd of March, after consultation with the Executive Committee of the Soviet. Footnote 3. Initially, Nikola was minded to abdicate in favour of his brother, but Grand Duke Mikhail Alexandrovich would agree to this only if ratified by an elected assembly. So, on the 3rd of March, 1917, the 300-year-old Romanov dynasty came to an inglorious end. Whereas in 1905 the autocracy had withstood the revolutionary movement for 12 months, backed by an army that had remained uncertainly loyal, in 1917 it succumbed within less than 12 days, not least because the Duma committee was able to bring the generals on side. Notwithstanding the enthusiasm of some members of the Duma Committee for Revolution, others were alarmed from the first. V. V. Shulgin, a deputy of reactionary views, who nevertheless was instrumental in bringing about the Tsar's abdication, later recalled the events of the 2nd of March. Quote, the revolutionary people again overflowed the Duma. The radicals talked of Dark forces of reaction, Tsarism, the old regime, revolution, democracy, power of the people, dictatorship of the proletariat, socialist republic, land to the toilers, and svoboda. Freedom. Svoboda. Svoboda. svoboda until one felt sick to one's stomach. To all these speeches, the mob belched hurrah. End quote. Footnote 4. The February Revolution gave rise to a short-lived mood of euphoria and national unity. See figure 3.1. Liberty and democracy were its watchwords. Overnight, everyone became a citizen, although there was some hesitancy initially about whether women would have the vote. Almost everyone, including bishops of the Orthodox Church, claimed to be on the side of revolution. Clerics of all kinds were subject to election until the autumn, when the mood of the hierarchy became more somber. Footnote 5. The public agreed that in order to realize democracy, they must organize. Organize, screamed placards and orators on the streets. The exhilarating tenor of public life was noted by Lenin's wife Nadezhda Krupskaya upon her return to Russia in early April. Quote, the streets in those days presented a curious spectacle. Everywhere people stood about in knots, arguing heatedly and discussing the latest events, discussion that nothing could interrupt." End quote. footnote 6. Red, which had once been a color that caused consternation in the property classes, was now embraced by all as a symbol of revolution. A joke did the rounds. His excellency to his batman Quote, you dunderhead! I asked you to get me a camouflage uniform, and you have brought me one in green. Don't you know that red is the only protective colouring these days? End quote. Footnote seven. Yet from the first, the scope of the revolution was in dispute. Was this a political revolution in which autocracy had finally given way to democracy, but which would continue the war in unity with the allies? Or was it a revolution that was destined to bring about far-reaching transformation in Russia's social and economic structure? Many generals and Duma politicians had supported the overthrow of the autocracy only because they believed that it would revitalize the war effort. For the lower classes, however, liberty and democracy were seen not only as principles for restructuring government, but also as principles that must be applied in building a new type of society. Ordinary folk in town and countryside not only showed a surprising familiarity with ideas of a constitution, a democratic republic, and of civil and political rights, but moreover saw these as a means to achieve peace, solve the economic crisis, and remedy deep social injustice. Dual Power The two forces that had together brought about the downfall of the monarchy, The Duma opposition and the mass movement became institutionalized in the political setup that emerged out of the February revolution, which became known as dual power. Footnote 8. The new provisional government in its manifesto of the 2nd of March pledged to implement a far-reaching program of civil and political rights and promised to convene a constituent assembly to determine the future polity but it said nothing about the burning issues of war and land. This fitted with the cadet view that the February events constituted a political, not a social revolution. The new government emerged from the ranks of the Duma deputies, 9 out of 12 members had been deputies. Although the remnants of the 4th Duma, led by its sideline chairman, Rodzianko, challenged its claim to be a legitimate government. Footnote 9 The head of the new government was Prince G.E. Lvov, scion of a princely family with a long record of service to the Zemstvos. In its social composition, the government was broadly representative of professional and business interests. The Minister of War, Guchkov, formerly the Octoberists' chair of the Third Duma, was a man of substantial means derived from his interests in textiles, banking, and insurance. He had devoted his career to politics, shifting support to the cadets in 1912 in protest at the imperial family's support for Rasputin, despite having challenged Milyukov, the new minister of foreign affairs, to a duel in 1908. In a government of moneyed men, however, M.I. Tereshenko, the minister of finance, stood out. By virtue of the 70 million ruble fortune he inherited, from his family's sugar-making business. The only organized political party in the new government were the cadets, who held 6 out of 12 ministerial portfolios, although there were significant political differences within their ranks. Over the next months, as the populace became more clamorous in its demands for radical social reform, the cadets would evolve into the principal conservative party adopting a state-minded and above-class posture. Footnote 10 In spring, however, the new government instituted far-reaching democratic reforms, including an amnesty for political prisoners, the abolition of the Okhrana, repeal of the death penalty and discriminatory legislation against religious and ethnic minorities, and a declaration of freedom of association and the press. All of this, incidentally, legislation drafted by the first Duma. Footnote 11 Within a week, 1,200 deputies were elected to the Petrograd Soviet, from meetings in factories and barracks, and the number soon rose to 3,000. For workers and soldiers, the Soviet was their political representative, the body that would ensure that their hopes for bread, peace, and land were realised. In view of this popular mandate, a few odd Bolsheviks, anarchists, and others pressed for the Soviet to become the sole organ of government. But the Mensheviks and SRs, who dominated its executive committee, dismissed this as unfeasible and chose to work closely with the provisional government. The initial chairman of the Soviet executive committee were the Menshevik Nikolai Chkheidze who had been born into a noble Georgian family, had been an active social democrat since 1892 and a Duma deputy since 1907, Matvei Skobolev, who had led oil worker strikes in 1905 and 1914 and had been elected to the 4th Duma in 1912 to represent the Russian population of the Caucasus, and Alexander Kerensky, a respected defence lawyer, who had also been elected to the 4th Duma as a Footnote 12. These men shared the view that the February Revolution was a bourgeois revolution, that is, a revolution destined to bring democracy and capitalist development to Russia rather than socialism, and they feared that to press for a too radical a program would be to provoke counter-revolution from the military leadership. Their policy was to give critical support to the provisional government so long as it did not act contrary to the interests of the people. For its part, the provisional government, uncomfortably aware of the narrowness of its social support and of the fact that it had no democratic mandate, endeavoured to induce representatives of the socialist parties to join the government. Only Kerensky agreed. Thus was born dual power an institutional arrangement under which the provisional government enjoyed formal authority, but where the Soviet Executive Committee had real power, since it had the support of the garrison, control of transport and communications through its influence among railway workers, and general support among the urban population. There was some overlap of interest between the moderate socialists and the liberals, but essentially dual power expressed the division between us, the democracy, and them, propertied society. Footnote 13. The February Revolution produced a surge of patriotism and a renewed determination across a wide swath of society to defend the revolution against German militarism. This mood was reflected in the Petrograd Soviet's policy on bringing an end to the war, a policy crafted by the Georgian Menshevik I. Sireteli, and published as a proclamation to the peoples of the world on the 14th of March. Although it called for the army to defend the revolution, its revolutionary defensism was more radical than that of the workers' group of the war industries committees insofar as its accent was very much on internationalism and on the achievement of a peace without territorial annexations or the imposition of indemnities. Footnote 14. Hopes were placed in the Stockholm Peace Conference, which had been proposed by socialists of neutral countries and eventually backed by the British Labour Party and the French and Italian Socialist Parties. However, the conference was soon scuppered by the Allied governments, whose determination to achieve a decisive victory was strengthened by the entry of the USA into the war on the 4th of April. Initially, the moderate socialists hoped that this might actually help the achievement of a peace in which neither side was victorious, since this was a position that Woodrow Wilson had until recently supported, but the German advance in spring 1917 seems to have persuaded him that the Allies should not be dictated to by Russian revolutionaries whose contribution to the war effort was now in serious doubt. Footnote 15 outside the capital, dual power did not really exist. Footnote 16. The lineup of political and social forces in the provinces varied a good deal, but in most places, committees of public organizations or committees of public safety were set up to fill the power vacuum. These brought together the educated public and workers and soldiers and acted to remove police and Tsarist officials, maintain order and food supply, and later to supervise elections to the municipal Dumas and Rural stemstvos. In March, 179 such committees were set up at a provincial level, 651 at county level, and about 1,000 at township level. Footnote 17. The Committee of Public Organizations in faraway Irkutsk was typical in defining its aim as being to, quote, carry the revolution to its conclusion and strengthen the foundations of freedom and popular power." End quote. footnote 18. The committees, however, did not survive for more than a few months since the provisional government was determined to stamp its authority on the localities by appointing commissars, most of whom were chairs of the county zemstvos and thus representatives of landed or business interests. In the provinces, energetic and respected individuals were far more important than political parties in shaping local politics. In Saratov province, for example, there were no political parties in three quarters of township-level committees of public organizations. This began to change as elections to the Zemstvos and municipalities got underway between May and October. But in 418 county towns, just over half the votes still went to non-party lists, in contrast to the 50 provincial capitals where Mensheviks and SRs were dominant. Footnote 19 In spring of 1917, some 700 Soviets sprang up, involving around 200,000 deputies as representative organs of the working people. By October, 1,429 Soviets existed in the empire. 706 of them comprising workers and soldiers' deputies, 235 comprising workers, soldiers, and peasants' deputies, 455 comprising peasants' deputies, and 33 consisting just of soldiers' deputies. Footnote 20. It has been estimated that Soviets represented around one-third of the empire's population. This network represented working people, but peasants were much slower to form Soviets than workers and soldiers. The moderate socialists tend to describe them as organs of revolutionary democracy, a bloc that comprised not only workers, soldiers, and peasants, but also the toiling intelligentsia, such as teachers and journalists, and professionals, such as lawyers and doctors, and even, as in Omsk, representatives of ethnic minorities. This revolutionary democracy had historically defined itself against the Senzoviki, a somewhat antiquated term that referred to those under the Tsarist regime who possessed sufficient property to participate in the Zemstvos and municipal governments, but which was used more loosely to denote the property classes. The basic principles of Soviet democracy were the deputies were directly elected by those they represented, and that they were accountable to and recallable by their constituents. In contrast to the committees of public organizations, Soviets were subject to regular democratic election and representatives were drawn almost exclusively from the different socialist parties. At the first All Russian Congress of Soviets at the beginning of June, out of 822 delegates with voting rights, 285 were SRs. 248 were Mensheviks, 32 were Menshevik internationalists, and 105 were Bolsheviks. Footnote 21. The Mensheviks and SRs generally saw the Soviets as temporary bodies, whose task was to exercise control over the local organs of government in the interests of revolutionary democracy. In contrast to what Lenin would later argue, Soviets did not see themselves as representing a higher form of democracy than that of parliamentary democracy. Footnote 22 Indeed, much of their energy went into campaigning for the constituent assembly, which, everyone assumed, would establish a parliamentary regime. Yet in actuality, Soviets quickly became organs of local government concerned with everything from food and fuel supply, to education, to law and order, usually competing with democratized organs of local government. As early as late April, left SRs and Bolsheviks in the Tsaritsyn Soviet affirmed it to be the town's ruling body. In May, the Kronstadt Soviet, which consisted of 96 Bolsheviks, 96 non-party deputies, 73 left SRs, 13 Mensheviks and 7 anarchists, caused a furore when it refused to recognize the provisional government. But these were odd exceptions before the autumn. Footnote 23. Although in January 1912 the conference in Prague had constituted the Bolsheviks as a separate party, in the provinces many local social democratic organizations remained unified with, at best, Mensheviks and Bolsheviks operating as factions within a single party. It is thus not easy to estimate the numbers in the two factions. By May, there may have been as many as 100,000 Mensheviks, 40,000 of them in Georgia, where their position was unassailable. Their stance of critical support for the provisional government had proved popular, and in the spring they grew much faster than they had in 1905-1906. to 1906. By autumn, the party may have had almost 200,000 members. As in the Bolshevik party, intellectuals dominated the leadership of the party, but the membership consisted overwhelmingly of working people. More so than the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks suffered serious splits during the war between defensist and internationalist wings. Saratelli's policy of revolutionary defensism went some way to bridging that split, but divisions soon reopened when Mensheviks joined the first coalition government in May. Following the July days, of which more later, Yuli Martov, leader of the internationalist wing of the Menshevik party, which had opposed the war, agitated for a break with the cadets and the formation of a government comprising exclusively socialist parties but the centre-right of the party opted to persist with the coalition with the bourgeoisie until September, when the party was plunged into crisis. The SRs were the largest of all the political parties in 1917. By autumn, they had about 700,000 members organized into 312 committees and 124 groups, loosely divided between defensists and internationalists. Footnote 25. Their membership embraced peasants, soldiers, who comprised almost half the membership, workers, intellectuals, the urban middle strata, businessmen, and army officers. The SRs were seen as the natural party of the rural population, although as we have seen, they had always had significant influence among workers. Like the Mensheviks, the SRs would succumb to damaging splits, owing to their determination to uphold a coalition with the bourgeoisie. The right wing of the party called for war to victory, and saw the task of the revolution as being to establish a democratic political system, entrench private property, and oppose the cruder forms of capitalist exploitation. The center, in which the dominant figure was Viktor Chernov, saw the revolution as one of popular toilers, destined to move towards socialism but most of the center were more committed than he to preserving a broad, popular alliance that included the bourgeoisie. Only in September did Chernov manage to pull the party away from its adherence to the coalition government. From May, left-wingers in the SRs began to crystallize as an embryonic party, by virtue of their support for the peasants' seizure of landowners' estates. Their hostility to the imperialist war, and their backing for a pan-socialist government. Their influence grew fast, and by autumn, most party organizations in the provinces had come out in favor of power to the Soviets. On the extreme left, the SR maximalists wanted socialization of both land and industry and a toiler's republic as the first step to socialism. In reality, Long before elections to the constituent assembly, the SRs had ceased to be a single party. The right reflected the trajectory of the democratic intelligentsia who were willing to postpone social reform until the allies had won the war, whereas the left sought to advance the social revolution by calling for power to the Soviets. And that's going to do it for this week. We will be continuing with this chapter as things continue to develop in the political situation. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts about all sorts of media. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.